Every day it seems your role is being more marginalized and diminished. But today, there may be no higher calling. Make no mistake, mothers. We need you. We need you to teach us to live godly lives. We need you to reflect Jesus to this desperate generation. We need you to build up and encourage the men in your lives. We need you to show the love of Christ to the outcasts and orphans. We need you to know how important your words are, how appreciated your prayers are, how meaningful your presence is. Don't ever think we aren't listening or watching, even if it seems that way. You are an incredible influence, and so often your children will follow in your footsteps for good or for bad. And it's such an amazing thing when they begin to grow and imitate the faith and holiness of a godly mother. We need you to nurture that faith in God so that it may pass through generations. As Paul said of Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother and in your mother, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. It is a high calling and a huge responsibility. So make no mistake, mothers. We We need you. you. Will you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1. And we want everybody to look at a passage in Genesis 1 with us, so these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back and get their attention. They'll get a Bible to you. And it's just about the first page, so it's not marked at today's passage. We figure you can find that one, Genesis 1. When you meet someone for the first time, one common way to get to know them is to ask, what do you do? So tell me about yourself. What do you do? But you know, telling me what you do is not really telling me about yourself. Now, I know that question, what is it you do, is intended to simply be a conversation starter, a way to break the ice with someone you've met for the first time. But I also think there's something deeper behind it. It's namely this, that we all tend to define who we are by what we do. Or if not defining ourselves by what we do, we may think of who we are by where it is we fit in demographic categories. Author Hannah Anderson described the issue this way. We try to find identity in things like relationships, jobs, political causes, or hobbies. We check boxes, make lists, and categorize ourselves by race, religion, and socioeconomic status. We calculate our bodies in pounds, inches, and clothing sizes, all in an effort to gain the security that comes from knowing exactly who we are and where we fit into the grand scheme of things. After all, if I know that I'm a married, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, extroverted mother of three who studied liberal arts, writes, likes to travel, watches classic movies, and enjoys long walks on the beach then certainly I must know who I am, right? Right, she says. She goes on to point out that all of us, but women in particular, and especially over the last 50 years with the rise of the feminist movement of the 60s, we've been on a quest to find out who we are. And in the words of those great theologians, Supertramp, 
There are times when all the world's asleep. The questions run so deep for such a simple man. Won't you please, please tell me what we've learned? I know it sounds absurd. Please tell me who I am. This morning, I want all of us, but ladies in particular, to see that you are more than what you do. And you are much more than what can be described about you on a census form. And only when you understand and embrace that do all the other pieces of life fit together. Let's ask God to help us as we look at that issue. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to be here as your people and to look together into your word, and in particular on this day, to focus on what you say about who we are and then and then the roles that you've assigned to us. We pray that we'll be able to grasp that and to apply that so that this week and going forward, we will be able to serve you and bring glory to you better than when we came. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, our culture encourages us to define ourselves by categories. So we're Native American or Hispanic American or some other hyphenated American. And then when we go to college, there are choices like women's studies or African American studies. Now, understanding these distinctions is indeed important, but they should not be the only things that we see clearly about ourselves, and they should not even be the first things that we see and understand about ourselves. What we need to see, friends, is the big picture. And when we understand the big picture, the details finally make sense. And so I've provided an outline for you on the back of your program. If you have that, please take a look at that. Flip to the back of it. And there I want us to see three things about how it is we should define ourselves, in particular our identity. And I say, first of all, a woman's identity is for God. A woman's identity, and a man's identity for that matter, is for God. In order for my gender and my role and my characteristics and my life in general to make sense, I need to know what I'm here for. And really, it's not what I'm here for, but who I'm here for. That's why the Bible says at the end of 11 chapters of a letter called the Romans in the second part of your Bible, the, the New Testament, 11 chapters of marvelous teaching of truth about God's purpose and what he's done in Jesus Christ in order to uh, restore his original purpose for humanity. At the end of all of that, at the end of chapter 11, here's what the Bible says. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Clearly then, men, women, children, and everything are for God. But let's see more specifically what it is we do for God. The Bible says in one of those verses that many of us memorize because it's important, but also because it's short. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, the Bible says this, Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it all, notice, for the glory of God. So a woman's identity is for God, but what is it that we are to to do for God? Well, we are to bring glory to God. Everything we do is to be for the glory of God, whether men, women, children, all humanity. But that then raises the question, what does it mean 
to do all that we do to the glory of God. You all have heard me say, if you've been around for any length of time, that the word glory is one of those church words that's always the right answer to any Bible question, just about, even if we don't know what it means. So it's kind of like when you're driving home today, and if you have children and you say, what did you learn in Sunday school? And they say, God. Okay. That's helpful. Uh, Can you be more specific? Jesus. All right. Getting warm. (laughs) Uh, The Bible. These are, these are the kinds of churchy words that are always the right answer. And if we're asked, you know, what is it that you are here for, we might say, for the glory of God. We might even quote 1 Corinthians 10.31, but, but what is God's glory? And scripturally, God's glory is the display of His character. And we see this in Romans 3.23, which defines sin as failing to be like God, failing to measure up to his character. And so that famous verse says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the glory of God has to do with his character, what he is like, who he is. God has created the world to show us what he is like, to show us his character. And so the glory of God can be used in a context like Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. So God does what he does because God is who he is. He has this particular character, and then what he does is to display, to show that character, or to put it in the language of the Bible, to bring glory to him. He does what he does because he is who he is, and he desires and he deserves to have an appropriate response to that display of his character. Worship, that is praise with our lips and with our lives. And so when I say, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise Him, all creatures here below, praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, what do we we call that? We call that the doxology. And the reason we call it the doxology is because in your New Testament, the Greek word doxa is translated praise or, or glory. And so God has made us in order to bring glory to himself. And the first way we bring glory to God is by praising him, doxology, with our lips and with our lives, praising him for who he is and what he has done. This is captured in yet another passage in the Psalms. Psalm 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. God has made himself known. He has displayed who he is by what he has done. And the response is then for us to ascribe praise to him, to glorify him with our lips and our lives. The first way we bring glory to God is by praising him for who he is and what he's done. But the second way is this. We are to imitate who he is. We praise him, but then we imitate him. It is true that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And God wants to see his character, what he is like, imitated. We see God's desire for his own glory at the very beginning of human history, in creation. And that's why I've asked you to open your Bibles to Genesis 1. And please look at verse 27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, crucially, importantly, I want you to notice this. 
Notice that our identity is first humanity, mankind, made in God's image, before we are distinguished as male and female. That is, our primary, our first identity is not as men and women, but as human, as God's image bearers. God first tells us that this is the unique thing about humanity, that you are all, we are all created in His image. And then he says, I have created these image bearers in two forms, male and female. And then in the next chapter, we'll talk about the roles that they are to to carry out. That's why in the New Testament, the Bible says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, friends, when you look at the about section of a person's blog or Facebook page, you know what I'm talking about? It's just the descriptor about who this person who owns the blog or Facebook page is. When you look at those, they are invariably filled with demographic and biographical stuff like married or single or I have children or what my hobbies are or my favorite movies and my music. But we don't say in describing ourselves human. But if we're not careful, our humanity gets lost in our diversity. Of course, we don't say, I'm human. That can be assumed most of the time. But we so emphasize the uniqueness and the diversity that we each have that we can lose the commonality that God gave us as humanity made to reflect Him because He made us in His image. You could say in that about me section of your blog or Facebook page, I am God's image bearer. You are not first a woman. You're first a human image bearer of God. You are not first a list of checkboxes, what you do, how you look, your marital status, your likes and dislikes. You are part of God's unique creation, made in His image and called to reflect it. So what then is this image, and what does it mean to us practically? The image of God in man means that we were made to reflect God. God is so intent on having his character displayed that he made man in his image to see his reflection in his highest creature. And this reflection is not a physical resemblance because the Bible is clear. Jesus said in John chapter 4, God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So it's not a physical resemblance to God. Rather, the image of God is personal and a moral resemblance to God. It's personal in this way. We have the components. God made us with the components of personhood as God has. We have the capacity to think and to act and to feel. We have mind and will and emotion. And it's moral in that we have the capacity to reflect God's moral character. And so we were made in God's image in order to reflect God back to God in the way we think and talk and act. You were made to be a mirror of God. And God wants to see His reflection everywhere. And that's why in verse 28 of Genesis 1, He commands them, be fruitful and multiply. I've made you as mirrors and I want lots of mirrors in my world, to see, in order for me to see my character. 
And God's aim is that the whole earth will be full of the Lord's glory. We were made to reflect God's image, God's character at all times and in all circumstances. And this now, friends, begins to help us fit the compartments, the roles, and the demographics of our lives together. Our work, our home, our leisure, our finances, our health, our church lives, all of it. In all of these, I am to praise God for what He is like, and I'm to imitate what God is like in each role that God assigns to me. Now, that's how God made it. Humanity, male and female, but both of them made in the image of God to reflect God back to Him in the various roles and circumstances that He has assigned to us. But the mirrors are broken. We're still mirrors, but what we reflect now because of sin is distorted. Instead of mirrors that you have in the store, you know, the department stores like to put lots of mirrors around so that as you walk through, you see how bad you look and how you need to buy their stuff to look better. But instead of mirrors in the store, we're like those trick mirrors at the carnival, distorted. The entrance of sin into God's good world means that people no longer accurately reflect His character. And what is the solution to that? God has chosen to use the gospel message to transform people. He created us to reflect Him, and in the gospel, He is recreating us to reflect Him. Ladies, the most important thing that you need, the most important thing for you to give to your children is the Lord Jesus. It is Jesus and only Jesus and the message about the person and work of Jesus that changes people into what they were intended to be. Restored now, mirrors accurately reflecting the character of God, bringing glory to Him thereby. The Bible tells us that this was God's intention. Romans chapter 8, the Bible says, He predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of His Son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. If you look at that verse carefully, we should all be encouraged that this will be done because God has determined that it will. Notice it says he predestined. It means God determined this would happen before he created the world. That those he calls out of the world and to himself will accomplish this objective that is always his objective, his glory, that is the reflection of his character, us conforming to the image of God the Son, Jesus. The Bible tells us in a few passages a little bit about how this happened between God the Father and God the Son as the determination was made, predestined, that this would happen. In Titus chapter 1, right at the beginning of that little letter, here's what it says. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, notice, promised before the beginning of time. God promised that there would be a people, an elect people, who would come to have faith, who would come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And and this elect people were promised before the beginning of time. And the question is, promised to whom? And 2 Timothy chapter 1 uses the same phrase, before the beginning of time, and answers that question. It says this, 
God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. God the Father, hear this, God the Father promised to God the Son before creation. A people that would be his very own and a people who would be conformed to his image. And so God has determined that those he has called, he will indeed finish the work he began. And that work is for us to be full, restored mirrors reflecting the character of God back to God. That's why 2 Corinthians 3 says this, We reflect the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. This is the reason then, friends, ladies in particular, that we do everything we do, including in playing our roles as mothers and fathers and obeying as children. It's the reason that God gave the Great Commission. It's because in evangelism, in the mission that He has given to disperse the gospel, it turns mouths and lives that now curse and rebel against Him into mouths and lives that praise and serve Him. And so one author has said, evangelism exists where worship does not. You see, the reason we need evangelism is because the purpose for all things is the worship, the praise, the glory of God. And any place that does not exist, then the gospel is desperately needed. God's desire for universal worship requires then this worldwide mission that He has assigned to us. The reason for which we were saved, friends, is to worship God because He is worthy of that worship. Ephesians 1 says this, In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. Notice, here's why, to the praise of His glorious grace. And then later in that same chapter, it says this, You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Again, notice the purpose, to the praise of His glory. God made all these mirrors and said, be fruitful and multiply because I want to see my reflection everywhere. And that that will be fulfilled. In fact, in the last book of the Bible, the Apostle John is given a glimpse of Uh, eternity future. History is done. And here's what John says in Revelation chapter 5. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And Then he goes on to say, And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. At the beginning of history, God made people uniquely in His image to reflect Him back to Him. And at the end of history, God's purpose will be accomplished. And in between, he gives us each roles to play in his work and in our families and in his church. And in each of those roles, the objective is exactly the same, to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to bring glory to him, 
A woman's identity is for God. A man's identity is for God. A child's identity is for God. And so I say in your outline, your role then is, excuse me, your identity is not your role. You see what we tend to do? We tend to first focus on the role of the man, the role of the woman. The Bible is quite clear about those. There are different roles. And we do have differences, but we don't first focus on the differences and on the roles. We first focus on the commonality we have, that we are made in the image of God to bring glory to Him in those roles. And so your identity is not your role. Several years ago, there was a best-selling book called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And in that book, author John Gray highlighted the many profound differences between men and women. And he suggested, as in that title, that we're so different, it's like we came from different planets. Now, of course, there are indeed many and profound differences between the sexes. But the Bible's teaching is that what unites us is more basic and primary than what makes us different. I've titled this message. Look at the top. It says, men are from Israel, women are from Moab. Uh, Why is that? Some of you might be familiar with the little book in your Old Testament, the book of Ruth. And there we have the the beautiful romance of a man from Israel and a woman, Ruth, from, from Moab. And you see there two people who are reflecting the image of God back to God as man and woman. We sometimes overemphasize the differences between men and women while failing to focus on our common bond, which is the image of God. And so we say things like, oh, you wouldn't understand, it's a guy thing (laughs) Or or a girl thing. And this confusion shows up in how we do men's and women's ministry in our churches. We tend to focus on what we're to do rather than what we are to be. We focus on horizontal relationships, how husband and wife can communicate better, how we can understand each other better, how we can discover the other's love language and and all of that. All of these things can be very helpful, but we tend to focus on the horizontal rather than recognizing, hear this, the horizontal is controlled by and is secondary to our vertical relationship with God. That is why when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second, notice he prioritized, that's first. And then second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we focus so much on what women are to do in women's ministry that our women forget who they are. Now, I just want to make, uh, give you a commercial briefly for our women's ministry. Uh, This fall and into next year, our women's ministry is going to have a couple of studies for our ladies focused on your vertical relationship with God. One is based upon a book that's just recently come out by the woman that I quoted a bit earlier, Hannah Anderson. It's called Made for More, an invitation to live in God's image. Our ladies are going to go through that together. They're also going to go through a book called I Want to Know You, Lord, I Want to Know You. These are going to be offered bi-weekly every other week, and they'll be offered twice during that particular week, once in the evening and once during the day, 
with childcare for both because we want all the ladies who want to take advantage of that to be able to do so. And then after the ladies are done with those and a focus upon those foundational issues of who we are, what our real identity is, then we can begin to focus on the particular role that God has assigned to us. We're going to go through a curriculum called Divine Design by Nancy DeMoss. Ladies, your identity is for God. And it is not simply your role as a man or woman for any of us, but rather it is us to reflect God back to God. Secondly, in your outline, your identity is not your role and your identity is not your situation. It's not your role and it's not your situation. We tend to make our circumstance our identity. So if someone has had a, a history of, of struggle with drinking, with, with alcohol, they take that on as their identity. I'm an alcoholic. And every time you, 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 you meet that person, that's one of the first things they need to let you know about themselves. And if you're not careful, that becomes your identity, a way to identify yourself. Or if someone's gone through the pain of divorce, I'm a divorcee. And that becomes the way to identify myself. But you see, friends, it should be this. I'm a child of God who battles a particular sin. Or I'm a child of God, His image bearer, who has suffered a divorce. My identity, our identity, is not our situation. It is rather that I'm God's image bearer. Whether I'm single or married, whether I have children or not, whether I am widowed, whether I have an empty nest, whatever my circumstance, my standing before God does not change. I'm made to reflect Him back to Him. Your identity is not your role. It's not your situation. Here's what it is, thirdly. It is your relationship. Your identity and my identity is found in the fact that we were made for relationship with God, our Creator. And now in His mercy, despite our sin, God has made us a way for us to be re-related to Him and remade in His image. And so with your identity now in your relationship with God, now hear this, it means that your identity is rooted in something that will never change. And it also means that your identity is not performance-based. Think about that. Man, if my identity is in my role, if it's in what I do, what if I don't do it well? What if I mess it up? Now, if I mess it up, what about when I mess it up? But your, your identity is not based upon, then, your performance. A woman's identity, a man's identity, a child's identity are for God. Secondly, in your outline, and more quickly, a woman's calling is by God. A woman's calling is by God. A woman's identity is for God. And our callings, as His image barriers, are by God. He is, that is, He's the one who assigns our callings. They're by Him. They're from Him. He places us in our roles and in our circumstances. What we must do is see our station in life as arranged and designed by God and pursue our purpose of reflecting Him in those varied circumstances that He has sovereignly assigned to us. Dear ladies... If you're not married, you have not missed your calling. Dear ladies, if you do not have children, you have not missed your calling. 
Our callings are by God that he sovereignly assigns to us. And in every last circumstance that he allows, every one of them, we still fulfill our purpose. We still maintain our identity as being image bearers of God to reflect him in everything we do, everything he assigns us to do. The apostle alluded to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he talked about a number of stations in life that people find themselves in. And in this passage, Paul, who wrote it, is suggesting that in these various circumstances, married or unmarried, slave or free, he says, don't let it bother you because you can still carry out your purpose in whatever God has assigned to you. And so he says, each one should remain in the the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. And then he goes on to say, if you're single, it's good. I'm single, says Paul. But if you marry, that's good too. And the whole point is that you are not defined by what it is you do, and you are not defined by your particular station in life. These are all sovereignly called, given to us by God. A woman's calling is by God, whatever that particular calling is. And then thirdly, a woman's life is from God. A woman's life is from God. That is, look, okay, I buy what you said, made the image of God, reflect Him back to Him. That can be done in all circumstances. Whatever station of life, that's going to be achieved because God has guaranteed it. Romans 8, 29, we're going to be conformed to the image of God. But in the meantime, there's in between. There are the dates of my life, the beginning, and then there's the date that will be the end, but I'm living in the hyphen in between. And what about that? And God is telling us that, look, your life right now is from God. One of the things that all of us, and particularly ladies I've found, but all of us struggle from time to time, we struggle with contentment in life and in our situations. Jesus addressed this when he went to the home of his friends, Mary and Martha. In Luke chapter 10 The Bible says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. So here's Mary. She thinks the only thing that's important is to learn from God the Son. Tell her to get her priorities straight, and let's clean the house. And here's what Jesus says. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. Now, notice this next phrase. But only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen what is better. The one thing you need, ladies, the one thing I need, the one thing we all need, is to learn at the feet of the Lord Jesus and to continually be nurtured by His Spirit and by His Word and to be conformed to His image. Our life, the stuff we do right now, is all from God and the contentment that comes from the stuff we do now is from God. So, have you ever heard someone ask the question, so what have you done for me? What have you done for me lately? Right? 
You know, Martha's trying to perform. She's trying to do. We all confuse our identity with our roles and the stuff that we, that we have to get done. And as a result, we can judge how, how worthy we are and how valuable, how valuable we are by what we've accomplished. You need to understand this. Only Jesus is able to perform. You and I mess it up. But thanks be to God, Jesus got it done. He got done the perfect will of God. Jesus did what we were made to do, but we have failed at because of our sin. And in the gospel, Jesus' performance becomes my performance. And your performance. And so you can get off the performance treadmill. This past uh, couple of weeks ago, I read a statement by a young lady who was talking about when she was a little girl. And in looking back at this time as a little girl, she's reflecting on what she would say to a little girl in her same circumstances. And here's what this young 19-year-old said. Although she'd never believe me, I'd tell her she is beautifully and wonderfully made. That those are the words of our Maker. I'd tell her to put the scale away, throw away those magazines, stop fantasizing about the day her crash diets would pay off, and she would be beautiful and all the boys would finally see it. Her beauty, her beauty never and will never come from her hair, her skin, or her belly. The way her belly sits on her jeans will never and could never decide her value. I'd beg her to see that her beauty is Christ. Her worth is Christ. Abundant, marvelous, and full. I'd warn her about the storms ahead and the loneliness and depression she'd feel. The waves would be strong and they would pull her under. I'd plead that she wouldn't rely on her own strength to stop the wind and the rain. Jesus is in control and is strong for her when she is weak, and that will be often. When you mess up, run as fast as you can to God. Run to the cross regardless of what you've done. Do not let sin hide in dark corners of your heart. Let Jesus sink your sin to the bottom of the ocean and clean you white as snow. Your weight of shame you bear is one that Jesus is willing to take and is still willing to take. Realize that and cling to the holy cross that displays his deep, deep love for you. Don't let this world tell you what love is. Read about love in the Gospel of John. Take notes. That is love. Hunger after it. Savor it. Know it. You're not who you think you are. You are not your sin. You are not your shame. You are not who the world tells you you are. You belong to Jesus, and that means you are washed, sanctified, justified. Let that truth resonate on lonely nights when you can't seem to quit shaming yourself for existing. Take his hand and let him guide you. Talk with him always because he knows more about life than I do. Think about me when you get down. Think about how my heart is still beating because his heart started beating again and still beats today for little girls like you. Remember always the hope that there is for me because that means there's still hope for you, little broken-hearted girl and all the others like her. And that was written by none other than our own Morgan Bedillo. And God did, Jesus did that work in her heart. And from that 19-year-old girl, that message is for every man and woman and child here. We need, all of us need, a relationship with the Lord Jesus 
who did the performing that we can't do and enables us then to reflect his image in the various roles and situations that he has assigned to us. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. And when we do, I encourage everyone here, if you've not begun a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ by believing on who he is and what he has done, you can do that right now. Here's how you do that. You realize you're a sinner. Recognize who Jesus is and what he did. He lived a perfect life that culminated in his death on your behalf on the cross. So recognize he died for your sin. Repent of your sin. Lord, I'm going to follow you with my life now. And receive him into your life. You can pray a prayer from your own heart to God in your own words. And you say, God, I am a sinner. Jesus is my Savior and he's my Lord. I bow before him. I give you my life. He promises to rescue you and to do the work that Morgan just described in you. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to reflect on these teachings from your word about what you made us to be and how then that permeates all of the circumstances to which you call us. Lord, you have indeed made us a difference as men and women, but we are not so different as we make out sometimes. Lord, we are all have in common that we are your image bearers, that we are humanity, and we are made for the same ultimate objective pursued in our different roles. Help us to see that and help us to keep that foremost. And I pray that the dear women here would see that it's not whether they are mothers, it's not whether they are wives, it is that they belong to Jesus and that they are his image bearers and they're being recreated into his image. Help them to see that as ultimate and most important, always. And then, Lord, in the various circumstances that you have placed us in, help us to pursue it with joy and contentment, knowing that even when we fail, not if we fail, Jesus has perfectly fulfilled all of your demands. And that perfection is applied to us when we come to you through him. I pray that there are some being drawn out of the world and to yourself right now. I ask for your Holy Spirit to move upon their hearts and cause them to see their need for the Savior. Save them as you have saved and are saving us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. There is one blank left on your outline. The take-home truth. Women like men find their fulfillment only in Christ.